Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Josh. I'm glad you're tuning in, and I'm glad we're going to get to spend the next few minutes together. I want you to succeed in life, and I want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. At Valley View Friends Church, we try to do this by, and this is our mission statement, that we reach and restore hearts and homes with Jesus. When we do that, we're going to grow and we're going to succeed in life. All right, well, today's text comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. I want to start with a little different story here. This is the toddler's rules for possession. You may have heard these before. I know I've used them before, but there's a lot of truth in how these rules work. So, toddler's rules for possession. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. And if I saw it first, it's mine. And if you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. Last rule. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> There's some truth to those rules of possession. And I would say, too, that maybe even as uh, grown-up children and grown-up adults, we use some of those rules still. We are strange creatures, very picky over possession. We are protective of what is ours and, and the people we call our own. We work hard for the best life possible, and we want to give the best life possible to those we care about. So possession matters a lot to us. But here's a big idea for you to grab onto. You cannot give your best to anyone, anything, or even yourself until you first give God his due. We often try to build up the best ourselves and give our best and then give God a bit later, but we cannot give our best to anyone, anything, or even ourselves until we first give God his due. Our text today speaks of a trap that the leaders of Israel have set for Jesus, and he turns the trap on them, revealing that they are mixed up in their priorities and what they want to possess. So, here's the text in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. Now, the heart of this text is verse 21. 
I want you to get this in your mind. It's a famous verse that people say a lot, but I want you to get this one in your mind where Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God? Well, first of all, we need to identify, yeah, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. It's a trap. This story happens one day after Jesus clears out the temple. He's chasing away the money changers and he declares the temple to be a house of prayer. He's trying to set things right there. The crowds of Jerusalem, they are taken with Jesus. They see him as a long-awaited Messiah come to set them free from the Roman occupiers. The leadership in Israel sees that Jesus threatens the status quo. The priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and in this case of the story too, the Herodians all want to keep keep order and the power that they've worked so hard to attain. They want to get rid of Jesus so they can keep what's so precious to them. So they plan a trap. They bring up an intentionally controversial issue. And actually, this will happen three times in a row if you continue reading in Matthew 22. We're only reading the first story today, but their hope is, is that Jesus will make a gaffe that he will misstep and give them ammunition to arrest them, to arrest him, or to fall out of favor with the crowd. One of those choices. The the hot-button issue is Roman taxation. We're not sure precisely which tax it was that's being called into question, although there's a few good guesses. And here are a few taxation points, things that are going on that helps to know when we think about taxes and Israel in the time of Jesus. Rome taxed everybody's land. And what it produced. And usually they collected that tax in harvest, in uh, sometimes they'd take money, but usually they were happy to take some of the benefit of the land. Rome charged taxes to travel on the roads, so travel was expensive. And Israel charged taxes to operate and fund the temple and its priests. And all Jewish people everywhere in the Roman Empire had to pay a special tax to Rome for a revolt they led earlier in their history, and so they were responsible for paying the expenses of that war. It's possible, though there's some confusion on how much tax is paid, but it's very possible that the average Israelite family had 50%, as much as 50% of their income, go out in taxes of various forms. So taxes were an unhappy issue with the Israelites. Now, these two groups, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, were sent to work together to trap Jesus, and they are unlikely allies. That first group is the disciples of the Pharisees. They're not yet full Pharisees, and some of them have even failed to become Pharisees. A lot of them will never be good enough to become Pharisees, but they're followers of the Pharisees, and they're sent by the Pharisees themselves because it'd be too obvious for the Pharisees to personally question Jesus. But just like the Pharisees, These disciples viewed Roman taxation as a form of idolatry, not just a thing to an occupier, but literal idolatry, the worship of a false god. And we'll get into that in a moment. And they viewed this tax as something that Israel must get rid of of at all costs. At least that was the words they spoke. We got to get rid of this. However, the Pharisees still paid the tax. They just simply talked about how bad it was, and they decided that they would just isolate themselves and be holy and pray about it. They they talked but didn't do. The second group in the unlikely team-up are the Herodians. These are people who have aligned themselves with Herod. They believe that the Roman way is the best way. The Herods 
are the ones who pay the tax to Rome themselves. It actually comes out of their pocket. All that tax that Rome collects, the Herods pay, but the Herods collect from Israel to help make it up. In fact, they collect too much tax because they fund their own military expeditions and building projects and lavish lifestyle by collecting taxes from Israel. So the Herodians and the people that support them are not concerned about following God, but rather keeping in the good graces of Rome. So you can start to see why these two groups are not likely allies, but they ask a controversial question. And I think you know what it's like to face a controversial question. We have all kinds of them in our culture today, questions that people are passionate about, that people feel strongly about, and they feel strongly about their side, and they feel strongly about the people opposed to it. The the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians, they want just a yes or a no answer, because either answer will trap Jesus. A yes answer, yes, we should pay the taxes, would actually, in the eyes of Israel, make Jesus a bad Messiah, because the Messiah they expected would come and set them free from the Roman occupation, and uh, that's paying the taxes. The opposite. It's it's saying yes to Roman occupation, and so a yes answer would frustrate the crowd that seems to love Jesus so much. A no answer would make Jesus a rebel in the Roman eyes, and it would give the leaders of Israel cause to hand him over to the powers of Rome for trial. It's a sort of question where convictions are strong and emotions run high. There's a real moral question for Israel regarding this Roman tax, one we don't easily see. But it's also the sort of question that gets everybody so upset that it can be used to close minds. It can close hearts. It can close ears to the truth. And I think we know there's questions like that in our society today. They're important. They have a real moral uh, position and, and value. They, they There's a right and a wrong answer to a lot of questions in our society today. But people also get so upset that as soon as the question is asked, they take their side without thinking. They close their minds. They close their heart. They close their ears. They don't want to hear truth. They just want to realize or they want to feel that their side is the truth good or bad. It's an impassioned question. And that's a lesson for us. Is there a lot of controversial topics that are aflame in our culture today? And they need to be addressed with truth, and they need to be addressed with the gospel. But if we're not careful, we can merely fan flames and close hearts from Jesus. So, beware when it comes to these controversial issues. So, how does Jesus diffuse the question? Because he doesn't fall into the trap. And here's the first thing he does. He goes beyond taking sides. He doesn't declare his simple stance on the issue, yes or no. He instead gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus, instead of addressing Roman taxation, wants to dig underneath of that and ask about something that's behind the question. The second thing that Jesus does is he refuses to let Caesar or the Herodians or the Pharisees to set the terms of the discussion. That's a really important point and something that I think many of us fall into. I know I fall into it. It's so tempting to address issues according to the terms of this world instead of the terms of Jesus. Whenever we address a hot button issue, let's not just step into the fight and fight the way the world does. Let's follow Jesus. Thirdly, 
he identifies the hypocrisy of his opponents. This is important to do. He identifies right away that they don't want the truth. They want a trap. They don't want the truth. They want Jesus to take sides in an argument happening all over Israel. They don't care about the heart of God. They only want to keep what they have. This possessive nature is a key to the problem. They just want to keep what they have. When you're afraid of losing something you possess, you run the risk of playing on Caesar's terms instead of God's terms. No one can take from God, and that is the position that we should take. And Jesus sees the bigger goal. Not taking sides in this issue, not inflaming emotions, but in drawing people into the presence of God and the truth. And so Jesus goes to the truth of the question. And he says, let Caesar have what bears his image and let God have what bears his image. When people choose to keep Caesar's coin and to become fixated on taxes, to give headspace, to give worry, fear, anger, pride over the question, they've abandoned God's way of living and they let Caesar set the rules for their life. And that's not something that you or I should do. So what does it mean to give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and God what belongs to God? Well, first of all, there is hidden idolatry in this question, in this question that the Pharisees and Herodians pose and that Jesus poses back to them. There's something we miss about this Roman tax, and that's the money it's paid with. And so Jesus asks his questioners for the coin which is used to pay the tax. It's a denarius. It's a silver Roman coin equal to and was used to pay a single day's wage for a worker. First, here's a tip off. And this is important. He knows someone in the group possesses the coin. Yes, Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He has that knowledge. But just having the coin is part of the hypocrisy. Because here's the thing about a denarius in Jesus' day. And there are pictures of denariuses from the time of Jesus, the, the, the ones that were minted from the year 14 to 37. So right when Jesus was in the temple being uh, questioned about this Roman tax, this was the denarius that was there. And on the front side of it was the face of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription that said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And the back shows an image of the Empress Livia Drusilia, wife of Augustus, portrayed as the goddess Pax or the goddess of peace. And the text on the back reads high priest. So there's a great irony that Jesus, who is the son of God, is holding a coin honoring Caesar, and Caesar is claiming to be the son of God, and he's portraying his wife as a goddess, and Caesar is saying he's the high priest over the goddess of peace. Oh, wow, what irony, because Jesus is the true son of God, and he is the true high priest, and he is the prince of peace, isn't he? There is great irony that Jesus is holding this coin honoring Caesar, Claiming to be the son of God. That's what the coin's doing. His wife is portraying, portrayed as a goddess. Caesar is that high priest. Oh, my goodness. Any devout Israelite with any sense of devotion to the Lord would want as little to do with such a coin as possible. I mean, it's breaking the, the commandments to not have a graven image. Have no other gods before me. 
Yet on that coin is Caesar Tiberius claiming to be the son of God and the high priest over the goddess of peace. And so Jesus says, "Ah, give Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God. He's basically saying, give the idolatrous coin back to the idolaters and get your priorities right for what they give to God. If they filled their time with giving God his due, the Roman tax wouldn't be an issue or a controversy. All they have to do is give God what belongs to God. But what does that mean? What belongs to God? That's an important question. The short and simple answer is that everything belongs to God, right? Scripture reminds us over and over that God is the source of creation, of life itself, and everything is for God's glory. Psalm 50 verses 10 and 11 tell us that all the animals are God's. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. Psalm 89.11 tells us that the heavens are yours, Lord, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. So everything belongs to God. When Jesus asked for that Roman coin, it's very important to him whose image is on the coin. Oh, and that is a key word, image. Jesus asked in a very specific way. He could have asked whose name's on the coin, or which government authorized the coin, or which government authorized the tax. Instead, Jesus asks whose image is on the coin, Caesar's. Image dictates ownership. That is the message you should be getting there. If it bears Caesar's image, then give it back to Caesar. The very beginning of the Bible, there is a, a description of God creating creating everything. And in that description, we are told that God created people in his own image, that we bear the image of God. It's there in Genesis 1, It actually says it twice in that one verse. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He wants to be very clear. We are made in the image of God. We are belong to him. We bear the image. Give to God what's God. That's our very selves. But there's a problem. None of us are perfect people. We all fall short. And the reason that we fall short and we're not perfect is sin. And it's because of sin that we are each fallen. The image of God is still in us, but it's broken. And our bent now is to please ourselves first, to make ourselves first, to make ourselves the owners of our own existence. We each try to live as kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. We try to set the rules, and the result is, is that we save the best of our lives for ourselves and our priorities, and we give God the leftovers. We try hard to justify this. God does not need my gift. He'll understand. God wouldn't want me to go without. If I hang on to this, I can better myself. And then later, I can give God even more. We say all kinds of things like that, but later never comes. But God wants to do a deeper work in you and in me. It starts with taking care of the problem of sin. This whole discussion and trap set by the Pharisees and the Herodians is all the more punctuated by what Jesus is about to do. They want to know who should get a silver coin, Romans or Israelites. Well, all they really want to do is trip up Jesus. But Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God. 
And in just a few days, because this is Holy Week when this story happens, Jesus will do just that. He will give himself over completely and totally, as he has always done, to the will of the Father. He will give his very life on the cross. He's giving to God what is God's. Jesus is no hypocrite. He practices what he preaches, and it is for your good. And Jesus gave his very self on the cross so that your sin could be atoned for and you could be restored to God. It doesn't stop there. For the Christian, God will continue to bring about transformation in the form of holiness. Ultimately, it comes in the expression that holiness comes in the expression, take up your cross and follow me. In Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Jesus said this to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will find it. It's not a question about who, does, who gets the denarius, who gets the Roman tax. It's if you want to find life, real life, you're going to reorient your priorities and take up your cross and follow Jesus. So, how do you give God his due? That's the question we need to get at before we close our time. And there's a lot of ways you can give God his due, but here are four ways to measure if you are giving God his due. The first one is this, priority must go to God. That is just simply give God priority over all of the things because priorities are tricky. Each one of us have many demands on our time. There's a lot of uh, demands on our time, on our energy, on our efforts. Uh, Stephen Covey, a business guru, says this, The key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. I think we can take a little lesson from that. Not just to prioritize and prioritize and prioritize what's already demanding of us, but to schedule the right priorities. And the Bible teaches about priorities through the concept of first fruits. That's a, a concept we don't like to acknowledge too often. And the idea behind first fruits is that Israel was to give the first of their harvest, the first of their livestock, the first benefits of all their efforts to God. It's there in Leviticus 23.10. It says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, you and you reap its harvest, bring the priest a sheaf of the first grain that you harvest. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And the Bible does warn about not giving the first fruits, especially the best. Malachi 1.14 says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrificed a blessing animal for the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. God doesn't need you to give, and God isn't trying to make you miserable by getting you to give, but giving the first fruits of your life reorders your priorities. When you give the first fruits, you are saying God comes first, and this means you will take a posture of obedience, of submission, and trust. When you give of the first of what you have, of what you've earned from your efforts, you're trusting God that there will be more. I mean, think about it. When the Israelites had their firstborn sheep or the first grapes out of the harvest or grains or dollars earned and they gave those to God, there'd be nothing left. They give the first and then there's an absence for a little while till a little bit more of the harvest comes along. 
it's a moment of giving, but it's it's not a moment that he needs it. It's because we need the transformation of our soul that comes from giving God priority instead of ourselves or anyone else. Think about when you're on an airplane and the staff walks through their safety procedures. If you, I know once you do, the first time you're on an airplane, you pay attention to that procedure. Less than like the third or fourth time, you're like, uh-huh, I get it. And they always talk about priorities. They don't say the word priority, but they talk about it. They, they have that little demonstration they do with the oxygen mask. And they say, hey, first, put on your own mask before you help others. Because if you get the priorities out of order and you don't secure your own oxygen mask, you'll be no use to others. And if you really believe that God is the giver of life and supreme over all the universe, then giving him less than top priority is leaving yourself unequipped to live well and to serve others well. When you're trying to give God his due, check and see if you're giving him priority. That is the first and the best. Or are you giving him the leftovers. A second way that you can measure if you are uh, giving God his due is this, is ask yourself, is there a real personal cost in what I'm giving to God? In the Old Testament, there's a story about King David. He has sinned and his sin is bringing a plague on all of Israel. And David's instructed to build an altar and offer sacrifices to God and that will take care of the problem. And so, when David arrives at the site and offers to buy the land from the owner, uh, and, and the owner just simply says, hey, I want to give you the land. You're, you're king. I'll give it to you free of cost. You're, you're the king. You deserve this. Listen to how David responds. It's there in 2 Samuel 24, 24. It says, but the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to my Lord, to the Lord my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. When you're giving God his due, ask yourself if what you're what you have given has has a cost to it, or if you'll never miss it because it really didn't mean much anyway. Our gifts to God should have a cost, and so if we we feel that a little bit, we know we're on the track of giving Him his due. Third way we can measure if we're giving God his due is simply if we're honoring God. Thomas Carlyle says this, show me the man you honor, and I'll know the kind of man that you are. When we give God his due, we are to move beyond obligation into honoring God and worshiping him. Ah, Think about reluctant obedience. It's an ugly thing. Have you ever had to do a job or a chore that you didn't want to do? Like, I don't want to do this today. Oh, do I have to? I've had those, and you know what? I've done them in anger. I've grumbled my whole way through it. And chances are good, if you're like me and you're doing that chore you don't want to do, you do the bare minimum to get it done. Or let's say you managed to do the job perfectly. It's beautifully done, but your attitude, what was it like? Probably pretty rotten. That's when you're playing by Caesar's rule instead of God's. Luke 12, 34 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And giving God his due is a way of changing the heart and showing what is in your heart. And honoring God does this. A fourth way. This is simply thankfulness is a key attitude. We got to do it with thankfulness. Ambrose of Milan said this, no duty, no duty is more urgent than that of returning thanks. 
A simple thank you. And God deserves all the thank yous, doesn't he? G.K. Chesterton said this, When it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. Just like honor and worship, thankfulness is about an attitude of our heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We want to know if we're giving God his due. We need to ask ourselves, am I giving with thankfulness? So I'm supposed to do it all the time. So are you ready to give God what belongs to God? Fortunately, he doesn't ask you to do this perfectly. He'll help you to do this, especially by the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's a simple way to start. Ask yourself, what do you value most? Ask yourself, is there anything in your life that you would not be willing to give to God if he asked for it? And if you're saying yes to that, you've probably just identified an idol in your life. So maybe this week you can ask yourself, what's one step you can take to give God your best? Let's pray. Lord, help us to give you what is due to you. And that begins with ourselves. Each of us are made in your image. And we need to see ourselves as yours and for your glory. Lord, convict us of the parts of our lives we try to hold on to too tightly the ways we've tricked ourselves into thinking that our own efforts are for what's best. Help us to see that we cannot be our best for anyone, even ourselves, until we've surrendered to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.